The following resource is by CBC Mokopani. For more resources like this, check out our website at www.christbaptismokopani.com. Friends, this morning's theme is quite fitting. I know that tomorrow is uh, Valentine's Day, and um, some of us are, are focused on the Eros kind of love. But this morning's theme has a lot to do with the agape love, and therefore our theme is the assurance of Christian love. The assurance of Christian love, right? Almost the theme presents the idea of phileo love, your brotherly love. However, when we look at John's study, he's talking about the sacrificial love with which Christ loved us and therefore we need to love each other in the same way. So just to recap, because it's been a few weeks since we've been in 1 John, I want to remind you that the theme of our study in 1 John is about the assurance of salvation. So every theme we've looked at until now has been the assurance of something that has to do with our salvation. We've looked at the assurance of Christ's humanity and deity. We have looked at the assurance of sin and antichrists. We've looked at the assurance of God's work in our hearts. And this morning, we look at the assurance of Christian love. This assurance is once again a practical one. One that calls us to action. One where if we're not acting, if we're not obeying, if we're not living it out, it says that you do not have the love of God. In other words, that you are not a Christian. One commentator put it this way, we can tell a lot by a tree and the bearing of its fruit. And similarly, we can tell a person by their conduct. If we say we are Christians, but we don't bear fruit, then we're not Christians. If you say, you take me to an apple orchard and you tell me that those are all vines, the grape vines, always sees apples then I know you're lying but that's not true and that's what we want to get to as John once again shows us that that which is right that which God commands if we obey that then the love of God is in our hearts and so for us to better understand it this morning I want us to do a theology of Christian love and then look at the practice of Christian love. In fact, that's how John presents it for us this morning. And so, as we do this, I want you to note something that Jesus said in John 13, verse 35. John 13, verse 35. Jesus said, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Right, So it's an assumed idea that if you love one another, then you are part of the brethren, that you are a Christian. You are saying that my life belongs to Christ alone when you are loving those around you. So, point number one, the theology of Christian love. In verse 11 again it says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. 
And why did he murder his brother? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Therefore, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That's the teaching. That's the doctrine of Christian love. That's the theology. Are you with me? John is referring to the first time they heard the message when he says, the love that you have heard from the beginning. You know it from the beginning. How? It's in the gospel. It's in the presentation of Jesus giving his life, laying down his life. That's where you the first time heard these truths. Now, of course, the result of hearing the gospel is faith. Paul says faith comes by hearing. Hearing the word of truth. Right? And so as we respond in repentance, as we trust that Christ has saved us, and as God begins, begins the continual work of salvation in our hearts, that's when we grew to know this love. Are you with me? Alright, we're on track. Now, having been saved, 2 Peter tells us that God has already given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Do you understand what that means? That means that you as a Christian can never say, Oh, but I can't love such and such a person. Oh, I can't obey in that measure. Oh, I can't be part of church. Because if you're saying those things, you're not a Christian. When Peter tells us God gives us everything that pertains to life and godliness, it means we have now been enabled to obey God. And not just obey Him, to execute whatever He commands of us. And so when He says, love one another, we have, through the enablement of the Holy Spirit, the ability to love one another. So you can't say, I can't. Right? So this means we have been given the capacity to love. Now how can we love? Later on, John says, we love because God first loved us. Amen? God has first loved us. And because He has loved us, He has enabled us to love. To love Him. To love one another. So we can never respond with, Hey, I cannot love such and such. But you're a Christian. Yeah, but you don't understand. They really hurt me. Yeah, but you're a Christian. Jesus loves those who murdered Him. How? How many of those gods came to salvation? Therefore, Scripture says, we love because He first loved us. Amen? Now, to love is commanded, but not only is it commanded. As I stressed before, we have now the ability to fulfill this command. And more so, to love is now part of the Christian's character. 
So again, if you're not loving, it tells us something of your character. That there's something missing. And if love is missing from your character, you cannot be a Christian. Listen, to love is not just a duty or a responsibility. To love is the evidence of God's presence in your life. I'll say it again. To love is the evidence of God's presence in your life. That is the Holy Spirit producing love in your life. It's the outworking of His love through you. Now, the very first thing that John in our passage refers to is of what hating your brother does. Have you ever wondered what it is, what it's going to look like, what's the end result of hating fellow Christians? Or just hating someone, period. Scripture says it's murder. But I haven't done anything. But what have you done in your heart? What have you imagined in your head? You see, Cain, who was filled with hatred, didn't imagine doing something to his brother. He did it. He executed it. Let me tell you something. According to Genesis 4 verse 8, Cain murdered his brother Abel after Abel's sacrifice of the firstborn of his flock was accepted by God. While his own, Cain's own sacrifice of the fruit of the ground was not. Now I know many commentators suggest the reason why Cain's sacrifice was not accepted is because it wasn't a right offering. Many suggest that Cain had to take up his produce, sell it to his brother for a, 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 an offering animal and sacrifice that. But my dear friends, it's, that wasn't the issue. The issue wasn't that he performed it incorrectly or that it was the wrong type of sacrifice. The issue was Cain was doing it for himself. He had no intention to glorify God. He had no desire to glorify God. And so scripture tells us in Genesis 4 that Cain got upset with this. And according to Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4, Abel's sacrifice was acceptable to God because Abel's sacrifice was done in faith. Cain's sacrifice was not done in faith. And therefore, Cain's lack of faith led to the hatred of his brother. And this hatred rose and it rose and it was boiling within him until he finally murdered his brother. If you go to Genesis 4 verse 8, it was a, 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 a brutal murder, right? Now tradition assumes that they were fighting and, and, and Cain hit him, presumably with a rock. Go home and do your homework. I want you to come back next week and tell me what Genesis chapter 4 says. The original languages do not tell us that he was struck with a rock. In fact, when we translate in the Greek, 
The Greek word for this brutal murder means to cut throat. It means to cut someone's throat. It means to slice it. It's pretty brutal. Don't try and imagine it. Now that would make sense because didn't Abel use a knife to perform the sacrifice? Most likely. Now it is assumed that if the murder was the slicing of his brother's throat, that Cain used his brother's own knife to execute this brutal murder. It's horrific, isn't it? But that's the type, kind of, that's what hate in our hearts does. We see Cain as an example of someone who practices or executes, yet we in our hearts do the same thing. When we willingly choose to hate someone, we are murdering them in our minds. Tell me, does a murderer inherit the kingdom of God? No. Does a liar inherit the kingdom of God? No. Does a thief inherit the kingdom of God? Well, who does? A sinner saved by grace. A sinner saved by grace. Amen? So, having seen the evidence of what hatred looks like, what, what it leads to, and the consequences thereof, I go further and I go back to John's Gospel. John 8 verse 44. According to Jesus, in, these, in this verse, it says, He was a murderer from the beginning. Who was a murderer from the beginning? Cain sharing in the nature of the devil. Wow, that's strong language, right? So in other words, if you are not associated by faith, it means that you are of the evil one. Either you're righteous or you're unrighteous. But what do we associate unrighteousness with? The evil one. The evil one. Not that you belong to him. So how does Cain represent the world according to our verses? Because John says, Do not be like Cain who is of the evil one and murdered his brother. And then verse 13 he says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. In other words, Cain in this sense represents the world. So if anyone looks like Cain, acts and speaks like Cain, they are of the world. And so John's point is this, Cain reflected the spiritual and moral characteristics of Satan and therefore he killed his brother out of jealousy, envy and resentment. Man, that's a, that's a hard heart, hey? That's a rebellious and stubborn heart. We can say that the devil inspired jealousy within his heart. Perhaps for this reason, jealousy gave rise to hatred, and this hatred gave rise to the actual murder. And so John says, Cain is a model of what the world looks like. Therefore, he says, do not be surprised when the world hates you. Because the same devil that inspired Cain to kill his brother 
has his grip on the world. That's why when we look at what's happening in Afghanistan, where Christians are being slaughtered, man, being decapitated, being children being gunned down, that's the world, I tell you that. It's almost as, as if Cain hunted his own brother. Nonetheless, the theology of Christian love, according to verse 14, tells us if we want the assurance of salvation, then it is to love our brothers and sisters in the Lord. If we're not loving them, then we are abiding in death. Then we are as if or part of the rest of the world. But the good news according to John 10.10 is that Jesus came to rescue us from darkness. Jesus came to give us the light of His life. This is what John means when he says, We have passed from death to life. Christ has rescued us. In Ephesians 1, it, Paul tells us that we, it's almost that we have been transplanted, taken out of the darkness and planted into the light. That's the rescuing. That's the love of Christ. Therefore, Jesus says in John 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. So my question is, are you alive? Are you alive? Are you loving your brother and your sister in Christ? Are you loving them for Christ's sake? Do you say to yourself that this person belongs to Christ? And because they belong to Christ, it is not only my duty and responsibility, but my privilege to love such a one. When you look at your fellow brother or sister in Christ, you ought to be telling yourself, this one is the child of God. Therefore, I love him. Therefore, I delight in his company. Friends, when we are avoiding each other, pretending as if it's, if it's nothing, as long as I go to church and not speak to so-and-so, I can interact with the rest. That's not what it looks like to love. The evidence that you are not of the world is that you persistently and consistently love other people in practical ways, in heartfelt ways, in sacrificial ways. This is what gives you the assurance of God's love in your life. This is what gives you the assurance of your salvation. Yet sadly, we can know the theology of Christian love and still not execute it. Am I right? You know people. They probably live in your house that say they love God. They love the Lord. They trust in the Lord. I tell you this. 
to love one another is not a small thing. It's not an optional thing. Loving one another is critically important. It's eternally important. If you could be in eternity and not love your fellow brother, man, you would hate it there. You would hate it there. Yet, we go on as if that's the case. That I can ignore so and so and such and such. Friends, loving each other is a matter of life and death. If you are not loving, you have not been made alive. Charles Spurgeon put it like this. Every man who hates another has the venom of murder in his veins. He may never actually take the deadly weapons into his hand and destroy life. But if he wishes that his brother would out of the way, if he would be glad if no such person existed, that feeling amounts to murder in the judgment of God. That's just the theology, by the way. So let's look at the practice of Christian love. The practice of Christian love. How then should we love each other? How can we love each other? Verse 16. By this we know love, that He, Christ, laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone sees the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Listen, we, we can be tempted to look at the theology of God's love and say, it's theoretical. But it's not. It's tangible. Our understanding of love is, is so often misunderstood. We confuse eros with, with, with agape. And we confuse that with phileo. John is talking about a sacrificial love. Something that costs you. We talk about love... We think about love, we write about love, we sing about love. But what do we truly know about love? If you want to see the love that's perfect, a love that's complete, my friends, we can only see it in Christ, who loved His faithless, stubborn disciples and still called them. Who loved the people that rejected Him. Who gave, as Paul says in the Romans, who, who gave His life for His enemy. Paul doesn't say Christ died for us when we became His brothers. Paul says Christ died for us while we were His enemy. John says... That in His death for us on the cross, love is fully displayed. If you want to see love 
in its picture, in its execution, then you see it through the God-man who was nailed to wood and who did so willingly. I mean, that is just so perfect. That is so thought through. That is by no means an accident. Yet, there's, a, there's this catchy song, I must say, it's quite catchy. That's, that's sung in Pentecostal circles. It's called Reckless Love. I don't know if you've heard of it. Don't go home and listen to it. Right? It's really catchy. The chorus of the song goes, Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, it leaves the night nine. I couldn't earn it, and I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Friends, I am so happy I could keep my breakfast down and read that. That is horrifying. I tell you why. Despite Bethel's false reputation, I, I really hoped that, that the author of the song just misunderstood or, or, or that he's you know, mis-expressing. So I went and I looked at his actual words and, and his actual motivation for writing the song. And you know what it says? I get so upset because it's worse than the actual song. His theology of love says this. This is the writer's own words. When I use the phrase, the reckless love of God, I'm not saying that God himself is reckless. I am, however, saying that the way he loves is in many ways or in many regards quite so. His love bankrupt, bankrupt heaven for you. His love doesn't consider himself first. His love isn't selfish or self-serving. He doesn't wonder what he'll gain or lose by putting himself out there. He simply gives himself away on the off chance that one might look back at him and offer ourselves in return. The recklessness of his love is seen most clearly in this. It gets him hurt over and over. Make no mistake. Our sin pains his heart, yet he opens up and allows us in every time. His love saw you when you hated him, when all logic said, they will reject me. He said, I don't care if it kills me, I am laying my heart on the line. Well, if that's the Jesus you believe in, good luck. Good luck. Man, I get so upset. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8 says love is patient it's kind it does not envy it does not boast it's not proud it's not rude it's not self-seeking it's not easily angered it keeps no record of wrongs love does not delight in evil but rejoices with truth it always protects always trusts always hopes always perseveres because love never fails amen that's the description of God's love because God is love. He is love. If you say God is not reckless and His love is reckless, you say God is reckless. Listen. Love 
is an attribute of God. It's what He is like. Love is a core aspect of God's character, of His person. God's love is in no sense conflicting with His holiness or conflicting with His wrath or with His justice. We often want to say, if God's loving, then how can He you know, be a God of wrath? He's a God of wrath because He's a God of love. Everything that God does is loving. Just as everything that He does is just and it's right. God is the perfect example of love, man. And amazingly, God has given those who receive His Son as their personal Savior the ability to love as He loves. And that's through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so John says, we know this. We know this. This is the love we know. This is the selfless, supernatural love that God is and gives through the indwelling Holy Spirit. God is not some wishy-washy, feel good. I hope you feel better, God. He gives us Himself. Listen, in context, Christ's love is clearly demonstrated by the costliness of His sacrifice. God's love can never be reckless because God's love is purposeful. It is sovereign. It is without error. So much so that Revelation 13 verse 8 says, Christ gave Himself when? Before He even created. Before the foundation of the world, the Lamb was slain. He didn't look to the future and say, they will reject me, therefore I must do this. No, no, no. God knew when He, was, when he made us, we will reject Him. And because His love is perfect, from the beginning, His plan was and is to give Himself in the second person in the Trinity, so that we can know Him, so that we can love Him and love those who are like Him. That's purposeful. That's plan. See, His love is costly, and therefore our love for one another should be costly. Gee, if, if, if John says, that Christ loved us in such a way that He is the example of how we need to love each other, then that's how we need to love each other. John 10, 11, we see an example of this. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John 10, 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my, my Father. 
as if that's so reckless. John 15, 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Listen, Christ is our example of love. Do you think Christ would die for us? For us who believe Him? And in that moment of death, say, I hope they believe. I hope they will trust. No way. No way. Because if that's God's character, then how does He sustain us? But because He sustains us, and because His Word says His steadfast love remains forever, John tells us in verse 17 and 18, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Oh, man. It's heavy because this is where John gets the rubber to meet the road, right? This is where John gives us the practice of Christian love. Jesus had life and He gave His life. You and I have goods, we have gifts, but we cling on to those things as if our life depends on it, as if our salvation depends on those things. Jesus saw our need. What was our need? Life. And he gave it. Yet John says, you see your brother's need and you close your heart. You see the need and say, nope, not this one. Didn't like this one from the beginning. Not doing that. Go well. Go and be well, brother. Be fed. How does God's love reside in you? The obvious answer, it doesn't. It doesn't. See, in a sense, John knows that our hearts control our hands. A closed heart will always have a closed hand. And that's the evidence of what's inside your heart. Listen, Jesus opened our hearts. Jesus gave us new hearts. Now, James 2, verse 15, and up until verse 17 says... If a brother is without clothes and lacks daily food and one of you says to him, go in peace, keep warm and eat well, but you don't give him what the body needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. I think it's one of the most slanderous acts we can do is if someone says I need help with such and such or I have this need and you say good luck with that if you can't help you can't help that's just as simple as what it is but if you can and you don't want to what's going inside our hearts have we given back the heart of flesh and asked for a heart of stone. Love is much more than just making this profession of faith. Love is an action. 
Love always expresses itself in works, which is done in the context of truth. Because don't get it wrong, don't run now and start charitable movements and your heart not be in it. Because that's also unloving. So, you may choose to do nothing, but through your words you promise so much. On the other hand, you may do something for someone and still have impure motives. Living out the gospel therefore means having our ears open, having our eyes open, having our hands open to those who are hurting, to those who are in need. We can't just talk about love. We need to truly demonstrate what love is. See, after all, Jesus didn't just say something. Jesus did something. And so if you want to be sure of your salvation today, I want to know if, if, if I'm saved. Look at how you love those around you. And if you are being unloving, I want to invite you. I want to invite you to repent before the Lord for your hardness of heart. Listen, we can be born again believers and struggle with sin. Struggle with love even. If, it's, if someone's difficult to love, listen, some people can purposefully be difficult to love. But that doesn't mean we can't or shouldn't love them. It means we should pursue them specifically. Don't avoid each other. Don't flip the phone over when the, when the call comes. Dear friends, we're a young church. We have a lot of moving parts. I ask you today, when was the last time you reached out to those who normally sit around you? That's the pastor's job. The pastor's job is to shepherd God's people. To shepherd God's people. You as a disciple, your job, as well as my job as a disciple, is to love one another. I don't understand why we keep hanging around waiting for someone else to take the initiative. Waiting for someone else to do it first. Friends, Christ didn't think, what if someone else would do it first? Christ prayed in the garden, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass by me. And then, that thy will be done. Thy will be done. Let's pray. Christ Jesus, we ask for a hand of comfort to weave in our hearts and, and mend that hardness that, that we have pursued, a hardness that, that we have invited, that we have pursued. I pray that you would soften our hearts, that, that we would not cling to what we have in our grocery cupboards or whatever it may be that, that a fellow brother or sister truly needs. 
whether it's a moment of comfort that they long for, that we would be willing to open our doors, open our hearts, and share in prayer. Lord Jesus, I pray that a word such as this, that would sting our hearts to realize we are so quickly given to the flesh. Instead, let us, let us live by faith. Not just speaking your truths, but living them and pursuing them. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.